You know, where two or more are gathered, gathered, there he is in our midst. And uh, with two or three, it could be pretty good worship, but boy, this was really special to hear you guys singing so uh, gloriously to the Lord, giving him honor. I just really appreciate being with you this morning. It's my privilege and honor to speak to you this morning from the book of Genesis. And uh, when Aaron called me, I was really excited. Uh, we used to get together, Aaron and I, probably might have been eight years ago, maybe about eight years ago, we started to get together for fellowship, accountability, and prayer, just some encouraging times, getting together for breakfast. We'd start to meet at Hy-Vee, and we'd have our oatmeal and our toast and our coffee. Well, I had coffee. I, I still have not gotten is he, he is not drinking coffee. I don't understand it. It's just part of the pastoral requirement to drink coffee. He drinks tea and honey. I mean, I, he's, I think you're British, and you've, you've hidden your, you know, when you speak in a British accent, it's a lot cooler, so you might as well just let it out. But uh, we've had a, we had a good time getting together, and I remember when we'd sit there, and, and, and Aaron would talk to me about a vision that God had placed on his heart to, to plant a church, a gospel-centered church in the name of Jesus. And I got to hear the vision, the excitement that Aaron had, the ups and downs of working through that journey, and uh, I got to see Riverwood, but without any people, just Riverwood in seed form. And so it's just a real blessing, and so you have a special place in my heart, because now I'm here and I see real people with real stories of life transformation in Jesus Christ, Riverwood in fruit form. So it's really awesome. You know, the birth of a baby is, a, is an amazing miracle. For those of us that have seen, that's unbelievable. But I think even more unbelievable is a birth of a church in the name of Jesus Christ. You know, God gets a hold of a person or persons, a servant of him, puts a vision in their heart, sends them out, and they obey his call, and the gospel is preached, the word goes forth, People are rescued out of darkness, transferred into his marvelous light, and a church is born. That's what Riverwood's story is all about. It's really exciting to see you guys here this morning worshiping the Lord together. But I tell you what, as great as Riverwood's story has been and is, there's an even greater story going on that you are weaved together into, and it's the story of Jesus Christ. And that's what you guys have been studying the past, what, four, five, six weeks, looking to the Old Testament and seeing the story of Jesus and all these great narratives that we see in the book of Genesis. So today, we're going to look at the story of Joseph finishing up the end of the book of Genesis. If you don't know where Genesis is, it's the very first book. So if you have a Bible with you or you can get on your smartphone, you can pull up the book of Genesis, and we'll be in the chapters 37 through 50, which is a huge chunk. So I'm not sure how I'm going to do this, Aaron, but I know you've done it with a few of the texts, but it's a big chunk of text. So we're going to do our best. I'm going to give you some cliff notes. That's the best way I probably can do it. But we're going to at least read the first eight verses of Genesis chapter 37, where we begin the story of Joseph. So if you read along with me, we should have it up on the screen there for you. Genesis 37, verse 1. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of the other sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us, 
Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. You bow with me in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this, your text, your word. As Jeff said so rightly, it's so relevant even today. After so many thousands of years that this took place, we still can benefit greatly by hearing these narratives, seeing these people, these real individuals and the struggles they had, and to see how you weaved your story, ultimately the story of Christ through all of it, so that we can all be impacted by him. So we just ask you to give us ears to hear, eyes to see, that you would help to apply this text to our minds and hearts, that we would live it out this week. In your name we pray, amen. Well, some of you may already know this story. Uh, if you were like me, you grew up uh, in Sunday school. I grew up in a Baptist church. We, had, we were in church all the time. And uh, before, not, you probably use iPads and Chromecast and smart TVs to teach your kids. But back when I grew up, and some of you will uh, remember this, we used an advanced technology called the flannel graph. And I, I think Steve Jobs actually must have went to Sunday school because it's a little-known fact of history that his inspiration for the iPhone was the flannel graph. That was how it happened. But if you grew up with the flannel graph, you probably remember Joseph like this, a little piece of paper with his beautiful coat of many colors. Whenever I read the story, I immediately think of that little piece of paper, Joseph, and the flannel graph and his brothers. Now, some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. You didn't grow up in Sunday school, but you might like musicals, and maybe you are a fan of Donny Osmond, but you probably remember Joseph and the amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. That might be the story you think of when you think of the story of Joseph. Well, let me tell you, obviously, those are fun things to look at, but the real story is right here in the book of Genesis. And you know what? It is really raw, really shocking at times, but also really inspiring because it's unlike these things, it's really true to life. And what's awesome about it is that you will see God weaved throughout the entire story. He's at work in all these details that sometimes seem absolutely unbelievable and horrific that Joseph goes through. So I want us to see one thing, the first thing I want us to see, the first point, as we'll look at a first chunk of this text, we'll look at verses or chapters 37 through 41. And in this section, I want us to see one main point that I think just just shines out. And it's this. God allows trouble and sin in the lives of his people to accomplish his purposes. It's absolutely true. He does allow trouble, deep trouble and sin in the lives of his people to accomplish his great purposes. Well, let me give you this, this Cliff Notes rundown of these, these chapters. And hopefully you've read it before. If you haven't, hopefully this will inspire you to read some of these uh, chapters to see this story borne out. But in chapter 37, we read a little bit of it. And Joseph is this favorite son of the father because he's born to Rachel. You already studied that. Rachel was his uh, beloved wife of Jacob. And he has, she has uh, J- uh, Joseph and Benjamin, these beloved sons of Jacob. And, and you know, the, the sons, the other sons of Israel, they're uh, very jealous, as you can imagine. I mean, this is a super dysfunctional family. Now, I don't know, you might have come from a dysfunctional family. The fact is, we all have come from a dysfunctional family. On this planet, every one of us is broken. And it's just, you know, broken in different ways. But I tell you what, as dysfunctional as our families are, our families look like the Brady Bunch compared to this family. This is a mess. You know, you got four wives going on here. You got 12 sons. You got favoritism. You got jealousy. You got anger. You got hatred to the point of wanting to kill one of the brothers. And that's what happens at the end of the story. They get jealous of Joseph to the point they say, let's just off him. Get rid of him. And the only thing that saves Joseph, of course, the plan of God, but the only, 
One of the things that saves Joseph is the greed of the brothers is just as strong as the bloodlust of the brothers. And they say, you know what, let's just, we'll get rid of him, but let's make some money off the guy. And so they sell him to slave traders. And he ends up ultimately going to be a slave in the land of Egypt. And then chapter 38 hits us. And if you've read it, you're kind of like, well, what is this? I'm getting into the story of Joseph. And all of a sudden, the story of Judah pops up again. And if you've read it, it's a very crazy story. And, and when people tell me, they say, oh, the Bible, you know, it's, it's kind of boring to read. I'm thinking, man, you have not read it. If you, you have not read Genesis, you have not read the book of Judges. I mean, you've not read the Kings. Hollywood can't hold a candle to this stuff. This is, and this is real stuff. And so this story in 38, chapter 38, is crazy. Essentially, it's, kinda, it's not PG-13 at all. It's, it's, not, it's, it should, it's probably not rated. And uh, it is Judah's daughter-in-law disguises herself as a prostitute. It's a long story, but basically she disguises herself as a prostitute. An illicit sexual relationship happens between Judah and his daughter-in-law. And out of this relationship of sin, two boys are born. And you might think, what, what is that all about? Why is that in the story? And it's kind of like a, a movie maybe you've seen or a, a show that you watch where it's got multiple character arcs and they all kind of come together to tell this one big story, but you see all these stories connected. And with Joseph and Judah, these sons of Jacob, the, this, the, there's multiple character arc stories happening here to tell this grand narrative. And so in this passage, what's awesome is this guy named Perez, this boy named Perez is born from Judah and Tamar's relationship. Tamar is the daughter-in-law. And what's amazing is this boy, Perez, becomes the great-great-granddad. He's a forefather of King David, the greatest king of Israel. And then, therefore, the forerunner of Jesus Christ. I mean, right there, we could stop the sermon right there and just go, wow. Out of such a crazy situation, an illicit sexual relationship, sin big time, comes the Savior of the world. That's crazy. But God can do it. He can work through sin and trouble to bring that about. Only he can do that. Chapter 38 happens, and then we get back into the story of Joseph again. So in 39, we see him in a household. He's a slave to a master named Potiphar. And Joseph apparently is a good-looking guy, and the wife begins to take a liking to him. And so she tries to seduce Joseph. Now, Joseph is an upstanding man, which is, is awesome because he, you'd think when you go through a situation like this, you've been forsaken by your family, you'll never see your homeland again, you're living in slavery, you're, you're, you're thinking, where's God? Where is he? He doesn't care for me. And if you're thinking like that, that's when temptation and sin happens. Because you're like, I might as well do whatever I want, because God's not for me. But Joseph doesn't do that. If you look at chapter 39, he stands up to the lady and says, I cannot sin against God and against my master. And of course, she gets upset with this, wounded, and she turns on him and falsely accuses Joseph of rape. And you imagine what the master does when he comes home and hears about this story. He throws Joseph into prison. And we're not talking a prison we have here in America. There's no cable TV. There's no workout facilities. I mean, it's a dank Egyptian prison. And Joseph is probably going to stay there, as far as he understands, for the rest of his life. Talk about injustice. But Joseph stands firm. If you look at verse 21 of chapter 39, if you can get there, I think we'll put it up on the screen. A statement is made, and I think Joseph, uh, I think we're supposed to see that Joseph feels this. He somehow senses this. In verse 21, it says, But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love, chesed, 
the Hebrew word, and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. Joseph sensed that somehow God was still in this with him. And that was crucial to Joseph's long-standing endurance in these unbelievable, horrific injustices that he faces. But the story goes on, chapter 40, he's in this prison, and he's gracious to these guys that are in the prison. The Pharaoh is upset with the baker and with the cupbearer, and he gives, they have these dreams, and it freaks them out. And he has this gift of being able to interpret dreams, and he does it to the glory of God. And he, he interprets these dreams for these guys, and says, one of you is going to get freed again and serve the master. The other one, sorry, but you're going you're gonna to lose your head. The baker gets his head cut off. And I don't know what he did to the Pharaoh's pot roast, but apparently it was a major no-no, and he got killed for it. But the other guy goes to the Pharaoh, and he forgets about Joseph. Joseph was hoping maybe he would tell the Pharaoh about me and I could get out of this place, but he forgets him. But then Joseph finally gets a break in chapter 41. The Pharaoh has a crazy dream, and he's freaked out. And the cupbearer remembers, oh, this Jew in this prison, he interprets dreams. So they call up Joseph. Joseph interprets the dream for the Pharaoh. And it's a dream about a famine to come where the whole land is going to be devastated if something's not done about it. And Joseph presents an idea of a plan to protect the people. And the Pharaoh's like, that's awesome. And he makes Joseph the second in command, the prime minister. Now talk about a rags to riches story. You know, from the dumps of despair to the success, the peaks and pinnacles of success. It's amazing to see what God is doing in Joseph's story here. Now, we see the whole story in living color right now. And we probably, those of us that know the story, know how it all transpires. We're automatically going ahead to Exodus. We're automatically saying, oh, I know why this all had to happen, because Joseph had to do all this and go through all this so that the people of Israel would be saved from the famine, so that they would continue to prosper, they would grow up in Egypt, and then there would be this huge nation, and there would be this glorious uh, exodus, and you you could see Charlton Heston in your head and the Ten Commandments. You're like, wow. Remember, for Joseph, he doesn't have that. He never saw the Ten Commandments. All he's doing is sitting in a prison, wondering, is this it? Is this my life? Joseph doesn't know what the future is really going to bring for him. He's suffering in real time. But see, what Joseph again has is an absolute certainty. He knows that he knows that he knows that God is with him, that somehow God is going to work together and weave this story of suffering into an unbelievable good purpose. That if he knew it at that time, it would have blown his mind. He just knows it's going to come. He knows God is able to do this kind of stuff. He knows God keeps his promises to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, and he will keep his promise to Joseph and the rest of the people of Israel for the rest of time. He knows it. And so that enables him, again, to resist sin, adultery. He resists the, the, the desire to bring glory to himself. He could have said, yeah, I'm the dream teller. Yeah, look at me. No, but he always says God is the one. He resists all these temptations because he knows that God is going to be faithful to be sovereignly good in his life. And I'll tell you, you guys are probably, you know, in a, in a crowd this size, really everyone at some point in your life, probably right now, you might be facing an unbelievable suffering. You might have family problems so dysfunctional that family has rejected you, like Joseph. Maybe you're at work and your coworkers have disrespected you. Your boss is giving you a hard time. Maybe you're in a financial strait. Maybe your marriage is really on the rocks. Maybe your kids are in such a state you don't know what to do. You cry out for help every night in tears. All of us have gone through many things, and maybe you're going through that right now. But you see what happens is for us, you know, when we look at our lives, we, we kind of 
we're nearsighted. I'm very nearsighted, so I can't see anybody right now at all. So, you know, if you, if you fall asleep, this is the time to fall asleep. See, we're nearsighted. When, when we look at our lives, we just cannot see the eye chart across the room of what's going to happen. All we can see is right now, <gasps> the suffering, the trial, maybe the temptation to struggle with sin that you're facing. But see, what as Christians we have, like Joseph have, had, we have this awareness that there's someone else in the room with us, that we're in a doctor's office. We're in the eye doctor's office. We're in a safe place. And he's in there, and he's got a solution for us. And, and the solution, of course, is him. But he also gives us a little bit of vision. He gives us corrective lenses to be able to see a little bit more, maybe not the exact details of how our life's going to work out, but the grand picture. And that's what the Bible does for us. That's what the scriptures do from front to end. That's what the story of Joseph does for us. It's like corrective lenses that you can begin to put on your eyes and look through all of the scenarios of your life, the troubles and the sins. And you begin to see more clearly that God is doing something great, that the doctor has a prescription that's going to work out for you, for your family, and for his glory. Amen. Yeah, praise God. So, when we look at a story like this, I just want us to see a few things right now. Maybe you're having trouble to see a little bit of what God could be possibly doing. It's really good to look at this lens of Scripture and say, who is this guy? Why should I trust him? So when you see the story of Joseph and Judah, we see a few things about God. God is absolutely sovereign. You know what that means? He's in control. There's nothing in this life that goes outside of his control. He's not sitting up in heaven shocked by things that happen. Every little last detail of the universe is held together by him. He knows exactly what he's doing. He's absolutely in control. And he's not just in control as some kind of dictator. He's actually unbelievably good as well. He is absolutely loving and he's just. He will make all things right in the end. All things that you've been through and the injustices you've faced, they will be made right. He is that good. And he's faithful. He keeps his promises. He will never fail to keep his promises. We might be faithless. We might deny him sometimes. We might doubt him. But he will never be unfaithful. He always does what he says. He promised again to Abraham a big, huge promise. And it will not, it did not fail. And I like this too. God is wise. God is wise. He knows exactly what to do, when to do it, how much of it to do, how much force he needs to apply to make that thing happen. He knows exactly the dials to turn in our lives. He knows what we can handle to make his plan for our good and his glory come about. And when you think of all these things, it really means this. God is eminently trustworthy. He's trustworthy. It means you can have faith in this God. Now, I would wager having faith in a God like this is the most logical, rational, emotionally and physically and spiritually healthy thing any human being can do. When he's faithful and wise and trustworthy and true and good and in control, trust him. He's that good. He's that good to trust. And so when we wear this corrective lens of the scriptures and these stories of God's character, we are like Paul then, as he says in Romans 8.28, famous verse, some of you may know it. We are then able to look at our lives and say very confidently, we know that for those who love God and are called according to his purpose, all things work together for the good. You know that verse, right? 
He probably would answer, all things? What does all things mean? All things. Judah and Tamar? A, a, a sinful situation? All things. Being in a dank Egyptian prison for being falsely accused of rape and being sold out by your brothers? All things. Right? All things work together for the good. Your story, your suffering, your sin struggle is working together for the good. Just trust him. Trust him. Amen? Well, still though, I think as we think of that point, I think it still can be a little bit hard for us to grasp because I think we think, really? God, is there another way? You have to use injustice and slavery and brotherly hatred and sin? You have to use all these things to bring about this great plan? Is there another way, Lord? And I would say, according to the word of God and what we see in his plan and character, there is not another way. Because here's the next point I want us to see about all this in chapters 42 through 45. Here's the next point. God transforms his people to touch others with the message of the gospel. He transforms his people and he does it through these experiences of the crucibles of life. He transforms his people to do something that only those things would allow them to do so they can touch people with the grace and the mercy and the hope and the love of the gospel. Let me bear this out. Let me first give you the cliff notes again. So chapter 42, Jacob's sons go up to Egypt. Uh, he says, guys, we're going to starve. All of Israel's going to die in this famine. Go up to Israel, or go up to Egypt, rather, and buy grain. So they go up. Joseph is totally transformed. He's got the Egyptian look going on. They can't tell who he is, but he knows instantly who these brothers are. That must have been a, a, an amazing emotional it was. You could see him weeping. Amazing emotional moment for Joseph. But in chapters 43 and 44, it gets real interesting. Joseph devises a test. He wants to see, you know, he, he knows he's changed. He wants to see, has their character changed? And he devises this test. There was one son that stayed back in Israel. It was Benjamin, the youngest son, the only last favored son of Jacob. And he stays back because Jacob and all the brothers know that if Benjamin goes up to Egypt and something bad happens to him, Jacob will lose it. He will die from heartbrokenness. He already lost Joseph. He can't lose Benjamin. So he doesn't send Benjamin. And Joseph asks the brothers, commands them, if you want this to work out, to get all this grain, you have to bring your brother Benjamin. That was the no-no to ask. And what's interesting in chapters 43 and 44, we see Judah's character arc, his story, come up to the surface again. And now, instead of a Judah who in the past had wanted to murder his brother because he was jealous of him being favored, now Judah stands up in the gap for Benjamin, and he offers himself as a sacrifice for his younger son, who's now the most favored son. He says, great prime minister, he doesn't know Joseph, great prime minister, keep me as a slave in Egypt for the rest of my life, but please don't take Benjamin. Amazing transformation that happens in the story of Judah. And in chapter 45, it just melts the heart of Joseph. He just starts weeping and bawling because he sees there's a profound change in at least that one brother, Judah. And so then they weep and they feast together. And of course, we'll talk about the end of the story here in a moment where it all resolves. 
But I want to make sure we don't miss what's going on. And as you see the rising action in the, in the plot line of this narrative, and then you see, for you literature majors, you'll love this, the rising action, then you got the conflict, and then the climax. Here's the climax where the brothers come, and it's just face-to-face. What's going to happen? Is, is Joseph just going to cut off their heads? Because that's probably what we would have done. Is that what he's going to do? It's the climax, and then it just resolves in this beauty that we see Jesus and the gospel in it. And so I don't want us to miss this. So when you see 42, if you go back to 42, verse 9, Joseph, when his brothers show up, Joseph has an epiphany. And he sees him and he remembers something. He remembers the dreams that he had when he was a boy, the dreams that got him into trouble. He remembers and he says, oh, it's making sense. Now he's got, he's got real major clarity. Now he's like, oh, God had this all planned out to preserve his people. And that really inspires him. It changes the way he looks at life. He has an aha moment, sort of what we call a a but God moment. Here is my life. Here's the misery of it all, but God. I was going down the tubes. My life was sinking down the drain, but God had a plan. And he has this but God moment when he sees his brothers and he realizes Wow, God is up to something really amazing. And that changes the way that he approaches his brothers. He is now able to offer them grace and blessing instead of vengeance and punishment. And then Judah, again, his story, he's similarly transformed. Like I said, he wanted to kill his younger brother before, and now he wants to save the younger brother. He wants to be a sacrifice for them. You can already start to hear the overtones, the undertones of Jesus Christ in this story. You know, both of these boys were sinners. They were sufferers in their own way. Yet through all of their hardships, their sin and their suffering, those hardships caused them to be transformed and to learn something about God that was so important. His love, his mercy, his character, his goodness, his sovereign control. You know, this is what the gospel does. If you are a saved person here this morning, someone who has put your hope and trust in this one Jesus Christ, you are now a new creation. And the gospel does something in your life. Like Joseph and Judah who are impacted by the character of God's grace and love, you begin to be impacted in a deep way. You know, these these guys didn't know Jesus in name, right? They were way before him. But they knew the Messiah was coming. And they could see the character of a God who saves sacrificially. And so when we see Jesus, these undertones of Jesus so clear, think about it. When Jesus is on the cross on Golgotha, on Good Friday, it's his brothers, the Jews, who reject him, who spit on him, and murder him. Of course, we would have been there doing the same thing with them. And on that cross, you remember what he says? as He's hanging up on that miserable, shameful Roman cross for us. He hangs up there and he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And you see a Joseph-like grace that Jesus is displaying in that moment to his brothers who were evil against him because Jesus knew the long game, the story, how it ends. And then you see in Jesus as well, the Judah figure. You see where Judah freely offers himself as a sacrifice. That's Jesus' stated mission. He says, I didn't come to be served. I came to serve. And to give my life as a ransom for many. To be a sacrificial offering. 
And that's, brothers and sisters, again, one of the key reasons that God allows us to endure suffering and sin. It's only, truly, it really is, only when we experience these types of things can we experience the depths of a gospel that is so radical it would hang on the cross and forgive those that are murdering him. It's the only way. It's a beautiful thing. But I want to make sure that we are crystal clear about this final point, about what the gospel even is. And I think we'll see that borne out here in chapters 46 through 50, our final part of the text. And we'll sum it up here. Chapter 46, you see the resolution of the conflict, the resolution of the climax, the happy reunion of Jacob and Joseph. It's a great story, just a great party. And then the Jews get this prime land in Egypt. And then in 47, you see an interesting kind of, like, what's that all about? Why are we telling, talking about taxation and how the whole thing went down with Joseph's plan? Well, I think it's kind of cool. We see all these political maneuverings that happen 150 or so years before the Exodus. We see in those political maneuverings of Joseph how Egypt becomes a mighty nation, how Israel alongside of it becomes also a mighty nation, and how all of that taxation, all that stuff, eventually ends up in slavery, so that God gets maximum glory by releasing his people unbelievably from the throes of slavery in Egypt. And so I just think that's cool. It's a little side point to think about wherever you are in your political spectrum. I won't say anything politically here. Darren's like, oh my gosh. Wherever you are, God is weaving all those details together. He's got all this stuff going on on every level of life. And we may not understand it. We may disagree with it. We may agree with it. Whatever. He's working it out for him to get maximum glory at some point and for you to have maximum joy. So just a little side point when you look at chapter 47. 48 and 49, we see blessings abound. We see Jacob blessing the sons of Joseph. And then we see Jacob blessing the 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Israel. And it's just a fascinating uh, text to read when you see all the ways that he blesses them. Powerful moment. And especially who gets prominence is Ephraim, who's the son of Joseph, one of the sons. And Judah gets prominence in the blessings. And they, they get that prominence, as you see borne out, and Aaron will probably speak to this later as you go through the Old Testament. Ephraim is a key player in the rise of the Davidic kingship uh, and, and, and in the safety and the protection of the people. Joshua, who comes after Moses, is in the tribe of Ephraim. And then when David is coming to power after King Saul, if you know these stories and you'll talk about them later, Ephraim plays an instrumental role in bringing the Davidic line to power. And then Judah, of course, we know Jesus is the line of the tribe of Judah, right? Coming from the line of King David. So Judah gets a special prominence because of what is to come in Jesus. And then the story concludes, chapter 50, and here's a key verse, one that I would recommend reading over, putting it on your, your mirror in the morning, putting it everywhere you can imagine. Tattoo it. I don't know if you're allowed to. <laughs> Tattoo it everywhere. I don't know what you want to do. Chapter 50, verse 20. It is amazing. Jacob passes away, and of course the brothers are still a little skittish. They're thinking, now that our father's gone, do you think Joseph is really going to cut off our heads? And Joseph says, guys, guys, you've seen my grace. Let me remind you, brothers. Verse 20, he says, as for you, you brothers, you did mean it for evil against me. Yeah, you did. It was sin, what you did to me. But God, but God meant it for good. Why? To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. God had a big plan, and Joseph sees it so clearly now. And he's able to preach that message, essentially a message of salvation in the God who saved, to his brothers. 
You know, we, we always think in the details of life, oh, the devil's in the details. No, God is in the details. God is everywhere in the details. And then the book ends with this stunning prophecy. Really cool. I hope you like this kind of stuff. This is when it's fun to read scripture. Like, ooh, what's this? Verse 25, Joseph makes this stunning prophecy. He says to the sons of Israel, because he's about ready to die, he's going to be buried in Egypt. He's, he knows he wants to be buried in the promised land, and he knows that that will happen. He has absolute faith that it will happen. In verse 25, he says, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. He knows that God is a God who saves. God is a God who has a grand plan, a grand story. God will take sinful, broken, messy people to bring about this story of salvation where he always absolutely, without fail, visits his people to save them and deliver them at exactly the right time. And that's what he does in Egypt. 150 years later, the slavery and then Moses, the deliverer of God, comes as a Jesus figure to deliver the people out of their bondage to slavery in Egypt. And as great as that deliverance was, and it's told throughout the world to this day, that amazing story of Moses and the Exodus, there's an even greater story as we know. The greater deliverance of Jesus Christ on that cross and three days later in that empty tomb. That is the greatest story of deliverance from slavery to sin. And God did this. This is what's it's awesome. God did this by weaving together a story through his people. See, he saves. This is the final point we want to get in this section. God saves his people. And what's cool about it, he saves them through his people. He weaves a story of Noah, and then Abraham, and then Isaac, and then Jacob, and then Joseph, and then Moses, and then David, and all the people in between, and all the people around that story and those stories. He weaves it together so that ultimately Jesus Christ could be born 2,000 years ago in a podunk village in a manger for us. It's amazing how he can put all that together. And it's without the endurance, if Joseph had not trusted and relied on God, if God had not worked in his life, if he had not endured, there would not have been the deliverance and the salvation of the people of God. And there would be no Messiah. If Judah had not been impacted by God and his saving graces, and he had not been transformed, and he, he would not have received the, the blessing upon his lineage, and there would not have been a King David or a King Jesus. All human history points forward and fulfills that pivotal moment on the cross of Jesus Christ. Amen. Because believer, here sitting today, you and I were lost at one point. You may have a vague memory, memory of it. Maybe it's very recent. You were lost in a pit of darkness and didn't even know it. Self-deceived. I was self-deceived. You were self-deceived. Self-worshippers caught up in our own self-destructive patterns that also destroyed the relationships and people around us. And we did what we wanted to, and it pleased us, and we had no idea the devastation that it cost everyone around us. And then a but God moment happens to us. Jesus steps forward as the substitute, giving us grace like Joseph and sacrifice like Judah. And he bears, his, or he bears our sins on his shoulders, he becomes a substitute for us so that we don't have to bear the punishment that our sins are deserving of the wrath of God. He takes it for us and he sets us free to live an abundant and eternal life with him. It's an amazing, it's an amazing story that all this story that the Old Testament weaves together to that moment for you here in Waverly, Iowa. Now today, if you're an unbeliever and you're thinking, oh, this is crazy, what are you talking about? 
You might be here as an unbeliever. I want to say to you, first of all, thank you for being here. It's by God's sovereign design that he weaved the details for you to be here this morning. Don't forget that. But it's also, I think, when you look at this story and you see all the details working together, I can imagine that you can see something, that without a God who saves and weaves all the details of life together for good, then life really is meaningless. It's just random. All the good things that happen to you, they don't have the sweet aroma of a gift given to you by someone who loves you. It's just a random lottery chance. All the bad things that happen to you have no hope attached to it. It means nothing other than just pure suffering. There's nothing good about it. And I would wager that that's probably not the life that you really want to live. And I would say that the reality that you currently inhabit in this universe, that is not the reality of it. There is a God. There is a creator, a sustainer of the universe, of all things. And he desperately wants you to know who he is and to know his Savior, Jesus Christ. So you can have this purpose to know that all things work together for the good for those that love God and are called according to his purpose and to use you to make his message known to the world. That is what he wants for you, my friend. Well, let me sum it up here. When we clearly see this Jesus and we see that all human history leads up to the cross, we also see that all human history flows out of the cross. As believers, you see, Your story is now wrapped up and weaved up into Jesus' story. God is still a God to say he is a God who saves today here in Waverly, Iowa. He has many in this town who do not know the hope of the gospel. And he, like he used Joseph and Judah, intends to use you, your story, your sufferings, Your struggles with sin, he intends to use that to bring about that many here in the city would come to know Jesus Christ. I think that's, amen, that is an awesome thing to think. Wow, he's weaved together all human history through the cross to this moment for me in my little world with my little sufferings or big sufferings and sins, and he's going to use me to bring about that many might come to know salvation in Christ. Wow. You know, you can trust this God. You can trust that he will orchestrate all these details together. He will do it in such a way that you'll be able to reach people for the gospel. I mean, think about it. If God can orchestrate such intricate, interwoven, interlocking details throughout all human history so that Joseph does this at the right time and his brothers do this, so that 4,000 or so years later, you and I sit here destined for heaven? If he can put all that together, then he can take everything in your life and weave together a beautiful story. And you know what? Many years ago when Aaron gave me that vision, talked about Riverwood and all the details that had to go together with that and where he was at with his life at the time. And God had given him this vision. God was working out a story for Riverwood. And that vision has become a reality here. And I'm seeing it, beholding with my own eyes. And now, as a church, Riverwood, God wants to use you in a mighty way. He wants you to now go out from here professing and proclaiming this beautiful grand story of this Jesus who loves you and gave his life for you so that you can be like Joseph and Judah and Jesus and present this message of grace, forgiveness, mercy to your people that you know throughout this city and this world. Well, God bless you. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for this time. Thank you for these people. Riverwood, I pray that you would impact them deeply with the message of this story of Joseph and Jacob and Judah and ultimately Jesus. 
And I pray that they would see themselves in the story, that they would not just see it as, oh, that's an interesting narrative that we've been hearing in Genesis, but they would see that they are a part of it and that they have a purpose and a plan, a great plan that you have for them to reach Waverly in the world with this beautiful message of this Savior, this Deliverer, Jesus Christ. In your name we pray, amen.